The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which it borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built itself a rampart and picked up silver rubbish, and fine gold like the mud on the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down the power of sin, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall ride in anguish. Akron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhibited, and mixed people shall dwell in Ashkelon, and will cut off the pride of the Messiah. I shall take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from the king's teeth. It too shall be a remnant from the God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and that God shall be like the Jerusalem's. Then I will encamp in my house as a God, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, and I will see them in our eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a cloth, the fall of a donkey. I shall cut off the chain from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you the whole. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons. O Greece, and rule to you like a very sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet, and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the skin stones. And they shall drink and roar as a drunken wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, or like the jewels of a crown that shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty! Grain shall make the young men flourish, the new wine, the young women. This is word of the Lord. Well, uh, good morning, everyone. Wonderful to see you at church uh, this morning. Uh, well done for braving the wild river uh, to, to be here. And uh, also welcome to uh, any uh, uh, visitors or, or new people uh, who joined us for the first time this morning. Uh, now, uh, I'm guessing that uh, there are also many of us who are sick with uh, colds and flu at the moment uh, or have other uh, difficult circumstances that are preventing you from being here. And so if you are joining us on Zoom this morning, uh, then uh, 
lovely to have you with us uh, as well. Uh, well, we're going to uh, have a look at Zechariah 9 together, so please have Zechariah 9 open in front of you, and uh, I'll lead us in prayer and ask for God's help uh, to understand His word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, so much for bringing us uh, through another week and thank you for gathering us together around your word this morning. And uh, Father, we just uh, pray that in the busyness of life uh, and ups and downs of life, uh, that you would please now uh, read us of distractions, uh, help us to um, come before you knowing the gravity of your word, and we ask that you would help us to listen to the things that you have to say to us, and help us to understand by your spirit uh, the things that you have to say to us, and we ask that you would help us to rejoice in all that you have done for us this morning, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Well, friends, one of the great joys of my job is uh, sitting down with uh, couples who are engaged uh, to help them prepare for marriage. Uh, my wife and I have uh, sat down with some of you uh, over the years to help you prepare for that big day. But what I've noticed time and time again is that these couples are so looking forward to that big day, the big wedding day that is to come, they are willing to endure just about anything to get there. Is that true? Uh, they are willing to endure the high stress of all the organization that needs to be done. They are willing to endure the great financial cost of putting on a wedding these days. They are willing to endure the conflict that can sometimes happen with family as they prepare for the big day. And even though most people say that they would rather die than to speak in public, they are even willing to give a wedding speech as they prepare for that big day. Now, I will be looking at the Old Testament book of Zechariah for a few months now, and uh, I want to suggest that uh, chapter 9, which we're starting today, uh, marks a big turning point uh, in the book of Zechariah because the book now starts to look very much into the future. Uh, you might remember that up until this point, Zechariah was dealing with uh, things that were present uh, in the lives of uh, the people of Israel of his day. Um, and so, for example, uh, it's been about the building of the temple in the present. It's been about restoring the priesthood in the present. It's, it's all, been all about the present time, and yet now, Zechariah starts to shift uh, his gaze and direct uh, his reader's gaze uh, to the future. And so, uh, in today's passage, uh, I want you to see that, that that's the case in verse 8, for example. Have a look at me at verse 8. It's about a glorious future day when God's people will not be oppressed anymore by their enemies. Uh, in verse 10, it's about a glorious future day when God's king will rule not just over the land of Israel, but from sea to sea. In verse 16, it's about a glorious future day of salvation when it will be obvious to everyone just how good 
and just how beautiful God really is. How does the future drive your present life? What kind of future do you think about that helps you to endure the trials of the Christian life in the present? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's very easy to simply be driven by the short-term temptation. Uh, so often, in the tiredness of life, uh, we live day by day, just trying to make it to tomorrow. Or if we're parents, we might live for the next school holidays where we get a bit of a breather and uh, we can go on a bit of a holiday. But what God wants us to do here is to take our eyes off the short term and look forward to the glorious future he has in store for his people so that we might be able to enjoy the present. Well, if we dive into the passage, um, the first thing that Zacharias says, you'll notice, is that God is going to restore the land of Israel to his people. How is he going to do that? Well, you can see in the first few verses that he's going to do that by judging and destroying all the cities that have been opposed to God and his people in the past. Now, uh, if you have a look at the first few verses, you might be unfamiliar with uh, many of the city names that are are mentioned there. Uh, But these are all cities that surrounded the, the land of Israel. Uh, and have been enemies of God and his people in the past. Now, to make things a little bit easier, I've given you all a map. Uh, so in your bulletins, uh, you'll hopefully have a map. Uh, take out that map, and uh, you'll see there, for example, that Hadrach, Damascus, and Hamas are cities sort of to the north of Israel. Tyre and Sidon, you can see, are cities to the northwest of Israel on the coast. And Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and Ashdod are cities in the region of Philistia, which was uh, sort of to the south of Israel. Can you see that? However, what is obvious in these passages is that all these cities will fall under God's judgment because they have opposed God and his people. You can see in verse 1, for example, that God is against these cities. Further in verse 1, it says that God uh, has his eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. In other words, God has been watching. Nothing escapes God's attention. He has been watching exactly how these cities have been treating his people. But friends, I haven't looked down at the cities of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, in verse 3, it says that built a rampart uh, or a fortress. Yet, it's not a military fortress made from stone that they've built up, is it? Rather, it's a fortress made from silver and gold and, and their possessions. For Tyre and Sidon were cities who were, that, that were skilled in a trade and therefore were enormously wealthy in that time. Of course, there is nothing wrong with silver and gold and wealth, per se. But you see, the problem 
problem here is that by seeking ultimate security in their silver and gold and positions, well, they can effectively reject God. Now, it's very, very easy to do this. We can often build up our own fortress of money and wealth and positions, thinking that it will provide the ultimate security that our hearts deeply long for. Is that right? Um, I recently saw a billboard with an advertisement for Audi. Uh, it had a picture of one of their luxury cars prominently displayed on the billboard. And uh, underneath the picture, it said these words. It said, Feel secure even when you are not driving. Feel secure even when you are not driving. You see what it's saying? If you own this car, you will feel secure, not just because it has airbags, but it will make you feel secure in the knowledge that you are wealthy. And nothing can touch you. Now, we often think that money and wealth and possessions can future-proof us so that we will be secure whatever happens. Now, it's very deceptive, isn't it? Because money, in fact, can secure us from certain things. But make no mistake, friends, money and wealth and possessions cannot secure us against sickness, as we've been seeing, or against death. And one day meeting your maker who will know whether you are on his side or not. For the people of Tyre and Sidon, it is precisely because they were not on the side of God that in verse 4 God says that he will not only strip them of their possessions, but destroy them and consume them as well. However, here's a great surprise in the passage. I wonder whether you picked it up. It comes uh, from verse 5, where you see uh, the four cities of Philistia, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and Ashdod, to come under the judgment of God. Uh, and yet, here's the thing. Did you notice uh, that it's, it also seems that while some fall under the judgment of God, that others will actually be included in the people of God. In verse 7, uh, God says that he will take away the blood from its mouth and its abominations between its teeth. That's talking about taking away idolatry because it was the pagan idolaters who ate uh, meat with blood in it. Whereas the Israelites were forbidden to eat meat with uh, blood in it. But astonishingly, in verse 7, God says that he will save a remnant who will be a part of Judah and be like the Jebusites. Now, I don't know whether you remember who the Jebusites were, but the Jebusites were actually the original inhabitants of Jerusalem. Um, they were the original inhabitants that King David uh, uh, drove out. And yet, if you know the story, uh, King David also included some Jebusites in his city. He showed them mercy. Now, isn't that a wonderful picture of the heart of our God? You see, friends, our God is a God who not only judges in righteousness, 
that he is a God who delights in turning his enemies into his friends. If you remember, the Philistines were the traditional enemies of God. Can anyone name for me a famous Philistine? Shout it out. The lions. You know the one that David, you know, kills with a sling? Um, he was a filthy, dirty Philistine, and yet here we see even the dirty Philistines coming to be accepted as part of God's kingdom. But did you notice also that God not only turns his enemies into his friends here, but God also guards his own people. Now in verse 8, you can see there that God sits as a guard and he makes sure that no one can ever touch his people again. A picture Kevin Costner in The Bodyguard, you know, refusing to let anyone touch the one he loves. And friends, we have similar promises in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? For through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, God has defeated our enemies of sin and death and the devil. He has turned us who were once his enemies into his friends. And he has given us a glorious future inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. And in today's New Testament passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, I wonder whether you notice that it says that God is going to guard us by his mighty power so that none of us who trust in Jesus will be lost. Isn't that a wonderful assurance? You know, we who are weak, who go through so many ups and downs in our life and in our faith, God is the one who is going to guard us. God is the one who is going to get us to that glorious future. Well, that was seen Zechariah reminding the people of his day that God will defeat their enemies and secure them in their land. But how is this going to happen? How is God going to do it? Well, the next few verses in Zechariah tell us that it's actually going to happen through a coming king. Now, uh, given that we've seen God in the first few verses destroying his enemies and, um, you know, obliterating everything that opposes him, you'd be forgiven for expecting that God's king would be this mighty warrior that gallops in on his war horse. And yet, here's the surprise, as we heard in our hit uh, spot. Now, did you notice that in verse 9, God's people are commanded to rejoice greatly and shout aloud because their king is coming? But this king is a king who rides not on a war horse, but on a little donkey. Zechariah says, in verse 9, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, now, it's not entirely obvious in our English translations, but here's a bit of an insight. Uh, in verse 9, when God says that the coming king is righteous and having salvation, it's possible to translate that as righteous and saved. 
In other words, this king is not only a king who brings salvation for others, but this is a king who himself needs to be saved. Further, when it says that this king is a humble king, mounted on a donkey, the word for humble in the Hebrew language can also be translated as afflicted. In other words, this is not simply a king who is humble in character, but this is a king who is afflicted and who suffers and who is in great distress. Now, which king in the Bible rode on a donkey and was afflicted and suffered and was in great distress? Now, I know what you're thinking. You're all thinking about warring with Jesus, right? That's what you're all thinking right now. But that's not quite what the Israelites of that variety would have thought of. For there was one other king in the Old Testament who came riding in on a donkey. Does anyone know who it was? Yes, Peter. Close. David. Uh, it was King David who, in 2 Samuel 15 and 16, comes riding in on a donkey after he has escaped the assassination attempt on his life by his very own son, Absalom. And on that day, if you looked at David, you would not have seen a victorious-looking king. Rather, you would have seen a king who looked weak and defeated and in great distress. And so for the people of Zacharias today, they were to look forward to a king like that. But of course, for us, we know that that king has come. We know that that king has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you see, Jesus is the one who was afflicted and suffered and was in great distress at the cross as he paid the price for your sin and my sin. Jesus was the one who was saved by God from death in his resurrection. Jesus, as the risen king, is now the one who turns his enemies into his friends through the preaching of the gospel and gives us a sure hope of a heavenly inheritance. And so if the people of Zacharias today were to rejoice in this coming king, how much more are we to rejoice now that we know that this king has come already for us that's the application of today's passage, isn't it? You know, sometimes we think that the application of God's Word is about physical things that we need to do. Uh, I wonder whether you come to church each week expecting uh, sermons that tell you exactly what you need to do. Go and read the Bible more. Go and pray more. Go and do more. I think a lot of Christians come to church expecting that kind of thing. Because I want to suggest the most fundamental application of the gospel is to rejoice. For the gospel is not fundamentally about what you and I can do for God, but it is most fundamentally about what God has done for you in this coming King 
died, who was afflicted, who suffered in your place. And so are you rejoicing? That's a very difficult application, by the way. Because we are not people who naturally rejoice. We are people who naturally, in our sinfulness, grumble. But rejoice, says God, for your kingdom has come. But friends, uh, there's a warning here as well, isn't there? For in the New Testament, you might know that uh, when Jesus did come riding on a donkey, people received him gladly at first as their king. However, when it became obvious that this king was going to suffer and die, uh, what did the people do? Well, just as quickly, the people rejected their king because he did not fit their expectations of what God's king should be like. They wanted a king of glory in the here and now. What they got was a king whose pattern was to suffer before entering into his glory. He suffered on the cross before entering the glory of heaven itself. And he warned his followers that if they followed him as their king, then they too will suffer before entering into glory. Do not make the same mistake, friends, of rejecting Jesus because he does not fit your expectations of what a king should be like or whether the life that he demands from us is not convenient for us. For in the end, only God's king can bring true peace. That's the picture we get in verse 10, isn't it? As God, God's king speaks peace to the nations and as he rules the world from sea to sea. Now, uh, when you hear the word peace, uh, what do you think of? I think that naturally it's very easy to think of, you know, the ceasing of hostilities around the world. Uh, in every beauty pageant that you ever watch, and I'm not suggesting you watch beauty pageants, but you see contestant after contestant saying they want to see world peace where, you know, uh, the, the bombs won't drop anymore and things like that. But when the Bible speaks about peace, I want you to know that it's talking about much more than stopping the bombs from falling on Ukraine. For it is possible to stop the bombs in this world and still not have peace in our souls. Is that right? It's possible for the bombs to stop, but still have a restlessness in our souls because not everything is right. But rather, the peace that the Bible speaks about is the Old Testament word, shalom, which is that deep sense of wholeness. This deep sense of wholeness and togetherness that only comes from knowing God and being at peace with Him. 
you want to be whole again? If you do, then know that you will only find it in one place, and that is the King that God has sent. Well, uh, we've seen God speaking to the people of Zechariah's day about the future. He's spoken about a future restored land. He's spoken about a future coming king for the people of his day. But in the final part of today's passage, he speaks about a glorious future day of salvation for his people. Uh, interestingly, he speaks about future salvation in terms of salvation events of the past. And so, for example, in verse 11, he says that he will set the prisoners free from the waterless pit. And in verse 12, uh, these prisoners that have been set free and have returned to God will be restored double. Now, who in Israel's history was freed from a waterless pit and was restored double? Joseph, thank you. In Genesis. Or in verse 14, God speaks about sounding the trumpet as he fights for the people. Where in the Old Testament uh, did God cause the trumpet to be blown to win the victory? Jericho, right? Um, or in verse 15, God speaks about sling stones. Now, when did God win a, win a famous battle in Israel's history using sling stones? Well, it was with King David, wasn't it? But notice, friends, how this day of salvation will come. Uh, it will come as God's very own people engage in the battle. Uh, in verse 13, you can see there that Judah, or the southern kingdom of Israel, will be, will be used as God's bow, and Ephraim, or the northern kingdom of Israel, will be used as God's arrow against God's enemies, who are here described as the Greeks, because uh, if you know your history, uh, you will know that Alexander the Great uh, and the Greeks uh, became the next superpower uh, who ruled the world and were opposed to God's people. But it's not that God's people themselves will win the victory over their enemies uh, in their own strength and wisdom and might. Uh, for you can see in verse 14 that it is actually God himself who will fight for his people and win the victory for them. Notice that the Lord is the subject of all these verbs in this passage. The Lord will appear. The Lord will sound the trumpet. The Lord will march forth. The Lord will protect. The Lord will give his people the victory. And so this passage concludes by speaking of that wonderful day when God will win the victory for his people and, his, and save them from their enemies so that they can live in the land and shine like jewels in the crown. It speaks about a day at the end there where it will be obvious to everyone just how good and just how beautiful God really is. But here's the million-dollar question. When Zechariah speaks about this great day of salvation, what day is he talking about? Uh, again and again, in the latter part of Zechariah, we'll be uh, hearing of that day of salvation. What day is he talking about? Is he speaking about a day that has already happened for us as Christians? 
or is he talking about us a day in the future for us as Christians? Well, one of the great surprises that you find when you come to the New Testament is that while the Old Testament speaks about the day of salvation as one particular day in history, what the New Testament shows us is that that day is actually a period of time. The day started with the coming of the Lord Jesus and His death and resurrection, and that day will end when Jesus returns again to destroy His enemies and to save His people. And so, has the day of salvation come? Well, yes. It has come with the coming of God's King. That's why Christians can say that we are people who have been saved at the cross, past tense. But has the day of salvation come? Well, not really. For we are still waiting for that day when God will finally destroy his enemies, including sin and death and the devil and all those who oppose him. And that's why Christians are still engaged in a fight. Uh, my brothers and sisters, does the Christian life feel like a fight to you? Only it's not a fight against flesh and blood, but it's a fight against the powers and principalities of this world. It's a fight against the temptations of the devil. It's a fight against ideas that are opposed to God and His ways. It's a fight that we engage in every day of our lives, in our homes, in our offices in our relationships, as we fight against our own sinful natures and all that is wrong in this world. I don't know whether you've heard of a person called uh, Hiru Anada. Um, I love telling this story because it's such a great story. But Hiru Anada was a Japanese soldier who was discovered in the jungles of the Philippines almost 30 years after the end of World War II. Um, the war was effectively over when the Allies dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The war was over. It was won. And yet, this soldier didn't really get the brief because he stayed in the jungles of the Philippines firing at anyone who would come in for the next 30 years after the war was over resisting anyone who approached him to tell him that the war was over. You see, that's what it's like now, you see. The day of salvation came when Jesus died at the cross. That's when the bomb was dropped, so to speak. First, sin and death and the devil and opposition to God was crushed and the war won. But in the meantime, there are still pockets of resistance out there so that we are still engaged in a fight. One day, Jesus will come to mop up operations and finally destroy everything that's 
stands opposed to him. But until that day, there is a fight. Being a Christian is difficult because the devil and those who are opposed to God, you know, keep on shooting, you know, bullets at us. It means fighting against sin. It means fighting against temptation. It means fighting the good fight of the gospel as we engage with people who are who are hostile towards the gospel. And yet, what God does in Zechariah is He holds out a great day in the future. It's the wedding day for all Christians. It's the day where Zechariah says in verse sixteen. All of you who are God's people will shine like jewels in a crown. It's the day where Zechariah says in verse 17, it's the day of flourishing where you will be whole again. And you will know just how good and just how beautiful our God really is. So, my brothers and sisters, lift your eyes to that future. For it is this future that will help you to endure the trials of this life. It is this future that God has promised us in Christ Jesus and will give you hope. It is this future that will help you fight. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that in Christ Jesus you have turned us, who were once your enemies, into your friends. And we thank you for the great security we now have in you. Thank you for the great security of knowing that our sins are forgiven. Thank you for the great security of knowing our future in your eternal kingdom is secure. And so please help us to be a people who rejoice in our King today, who has given us this glorious future. And Father, we also pray that you would help us to continue to gaze at this future so that we might persevere in our Christian lives. Help us to fight against sin and temptation. Give us strength to live your way rather than in the ways of this world which is coming to an end. And we pray that before the day of our Lord Jesus comes, which will be a great day for us, we believe, but our terrifying day for those outside of Christ. We ask that you would pour out your mercy on many so that your kingdom might continue to extend and grow until that day. For we pray these things.